The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We have a chance to ride out this Omicron wave without shutting down our country once again. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. We need to recognise that Russia is now calling the shots here. Mad in their sleaze with a divided party. A prime minister losing the support of his backbenchers and governing shambolically. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. On today's show, we'll be speaking to Peter Gibson, Conservative MP for Darlington, and we'll get the very latest political polling with the Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, Kelly Beaver. Now, Boris Johnson's almost made it to the end of term with Parliament going into its final sitting before recess. But a picture of him at a lockdown Christmas quiz with a mystery bottle of bubbly prompted the Met Police to look into the event. They are emailing more than 50 people as part of their inquiry into Downing Street parties. And from fizz to foreign policy, the government is busy today firming up its stance on Ukraine. Yeah, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is in Moscow for talks with her Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. She's urging him to take the path of diplomacy and says a war would be disastrous. But the reality is we cannot ignore the build-up of over 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border and the attempts to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is flying to Poland to speak to its leader about the crisis after placing a 1,000 British troops on standby. Russia has repeatedly denied it has any plans to invade. So joining us now is Peter Gibson, Conservative MP for Darlington. Welcome to the programme, Peter. Thanks for being with us. You do have a private member's bill, good morning, on the licensing of taxis, which I want to get on to in a moment. But in terms of COVID, shall we start there? All COVID isolation rules are going to go uh, in February, a full month earlier than had been thought. Do you have any worries about people going to work as usual when they have or might have COVID? I I think the important thing to to say, first of all, is that we we have responded very well to the um, COVID pandemic. We've got those vaccines rolled out. We got the call right in respect of not locking down with Omicron over the Christmas period and all of those sacrifices that have been made by the British people, we're we're now able to reap those rewards of opening back up um, and and getting back on with our lives. We've now got the most open economy in the European area and it's really great that we can start to reap those rewards and benefits of where we've come to on the back of the Peter, we've gone much further than any other European country and the scientists are by no means sure that COVID is over. Uh, Two years into it, we could well be just in the middle of it. Who knows? Well, I I don't think we will ever be completely over COVID. We haven't eliminated COVID. We are learning to live with it. And, you know, the treatments and the vaccines are ways that we've been able to to open back up and and start to get back to normal. I, I think when you talk to people in, I certainly talk to people in my constituency, 
they're they're looking forward to getting back on with their lives as best as they possibly can and, and living with this. And I think the the measures that have been announced in terms of rolling back those isolation rules are, are getting back to normal. I think that's really important for us as a society. You said the PM was right to apologise for his actions uh, over the Downing Street parties. Now, Darlington is a, a red wall seat with a, a 3,000 majority. How important was Boris Johnson personally to, to you winning? Uh, well, I've got a 3,294 majority, just to just to get that figure actually on the record. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to enter into a debate about whether Darlington is or isn't a red wall. There's uh, political commentators out there who will advise you that it isn't because it's previously been a Conservative seat. But uh-huh. uh, in terms of the Prime Minister, um, he has been a pivotal figure in securing that majority that we achieved in 2019. And I have no doubt that my success and victory in Darlington, along with those red wall seats that surround me in places like Sedgefield and Bishop Auckland. Uh, The Prime Minister's uh, contribution to that campaign, his leadership, uh, was pivotal to our success. So I I feel very, uh, very proud to be part of his team. I feel that um, he, he has been a very key part in our success, Um, just as he's been a key success to uh, navigating the virus over the last two years, you know, pushing on with getting the vaccines developed, pushing on with delivery of the vaccine, getting the calls right on Omicron, okay. still, getting still Brexit proud of the, the prime minister. Although yesterday, yet another bit of photographic evidence of him partying during lockdown. Would you be better or worse off with a new leader? Do you think? Well, I think there's a number of things to say to you, Caroline. The mm. prime minister. Um, has come to the Commons on a number of occasions and issued apologies. He um, he called for the inquiry. He pointed to Sue Gray. He published the report. He's accepted the findings. And he has undertaken again yesterday in the chamber to publish in full everything that Sue Gray has as soon as the Met has completed its investigations. And I don't think it would be appropriate to start speculating and commenting on individual items that have been passed to the Met to look at. Do you think that settles that settles the business, really? Are we, are we past the worst of this for the party? Well, <laughs> there's a number of kind of responses to give to that, Ewan. Um, I, I, for one, was very disappointed and dismayed to learn about events that have gone on in Downing Street, as indeed many of my colleagues were. And rightly, my constituents have expressed their anger and frustration. I've I've had lots of emails. I've spoken with many of my constituents and and listened to their stories. And, you know, that that palpable sense of anger is real out there. But but I think moving on, we've got to a stage where this has been played out in the media with such frequency over the recent weeks that I think it's it's getting to the point of saturation and we need to wait for the outcome of that net inquiry. The PM's undertaken to publish in full um, Sue Gray's report, unredacted, with all the evidence. Okay, so, I, I, all right, so we have to wait for the report. To Understood. I don't, I don't think there's anything to be gained from pursuing this story at this particular point in time. Then in that case, let me ask you about workplace culture. 
as an MP yourself, Parliament sees itself as exceptional. I mean, you know, you could think about maternity rights, uh, about um, uh, lots of issues that Parliament sees differently. There are bars on site. Does Parliament have a problem? Is the workplace environment toxic? I mean, most bars now have gone from other workplaces when they used to exist. There are strict rules around alcohol in, in workplaces across most of the UK, I'd say. Is that a problem that Parliament sees itself as an exception? Well, I'm not sure who you are saying Parliament sees itself as exceptional. Um, Having worked in a professional work environment for almost 20 years before I was elected to Parliament, um, arising in Parliament is, it is an unusual place. Um, Mm. But it's an unusual place because of the nature of the work that it does, the um, strange antisocial hours that it takes. the role that it plays in terms of hospitality to um, a whole host of organisations and groups who have uh, need to be in Parliament and talking to parliamentarians. Um, I think it's changing from what it perhaps has been in in the past. Um, But it it is an unusual environment to be in. It's kind of a mix between, you know, uh, a, a workplace um, but for many people, you know, particularly parliamentarians that are not local to London, it, it, it's where they spend pretty mm. much every waking moment when they are in London, you know, including for food and, and, and drink during the day and, and in the evening. So P- it, it isn't akin to another workplace. Hmm, quite different. I want to get on to the subject of your private members bill. Now, this is on the licensing of taxis. Just tell us what's the problem with the system as it stands? So in a nutshell, the, the current system where you've got 276 local authorities who issue taxi licences to drivers, um, of which we've got about 340,000, um, each individual taxi licensing local authority um, is is free to issue taxis as it sees fit um, to people in its locality. And at the moment, there is no compulsory sharing of information and data between those local authorities where somebody has been refused a licence or had their licence suspended or revoked. What my bill does is it closes the loophole that enables somebody to be rejected in one local authority, going to another local authority and applying for a licence there, and the new local authority is unaware of the information that the rejecting local authority has. So it closes that loophole and effectively provides safeguards for the users of taxis to know that people who have been licensed by taxis, uh, taxi licensing authorities, haven't been rejected and revoked or suspended by another local authority. Okay, there have been actually protests about this, though, about tougher licensing rules uh, in Leeds and in other towns too. There's also a taxi driver shortage, so there's that issue. Um, I mean, any any uh, response to taxi drivers who might be who might be saying that actually the rules are already quite tough? Well, the, 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 the bill that I've brought forward does not change the standards that uh, local authorities apply. Um, it doesn't change the rights of appeal that taxi drivers have. I'm, I'm completely unfamiliar with any protests that have taken place in Leeds, so I'm really sorry I can't comment in respect of that. Um, if we have got taxi driver shortages, and I know that we have, um, we, we do not want to start lowering standards and making it easier for people that shouldn't be on our roads as taxi drivers to come into the profession to 
have vehicles on the road. This is about providing security and safety for passengers in taxis, giving them the peace of mind, knowing that due diligence has been properly followed by local authorities and that there are no loopholes in the system. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. And for that, we're joined by James Wilcock. Great to have you on, James. It's been another hugely tumultuous week, hasn't it? As Parliament wraps up for the recess, where do we stand now in terms of Boris Johnson's future? We have, in this start of the year, I think, it's worth saying, seen a pretty dramatic change in his future as PM. And I just want to sort of take you back on that, Mm -hmm. because we've seen the top team change just this week, with Jacob Rees-Mogg being sort of the new Brexit opportunities minister. And what we're seeing is Johnson's top aide, Rainier Moses, has left. His authority has very much crumbled. And we're now looking at sort of big, big changes in policy. And you can see how from levelling up a Michael Gove's new paper in that, to the changes in energy crisis, to even sort of Johnson sacrificing his own pet projects, little things like anti obesity sort of laws going away what you can start to see is that now johnson's main electorate is his own mps and keeping them on side and um i think as we step away one of the reasons why the next week in my opinion could be a bit of a reprieve for johnson is you can't graham brady can't put in yes letters. well people are away in their constituencies yeah for for the break okay so perhaps the temperature will go down in the next few days well i asked peter gibson uh, whether it's over now and i don't mean the pandemic i mean party gate have you got any sense of of is this going to keep on rumbling on through the spring 100 so right the immediate kind of sting has gone but like i said that that sort of shift in sort of how johnson sees his premiership and how mps see him has fundamentally shifted and that like even how they're going to be talking about the budget in a month's time Johnson doesn't get to set his own agenda anymore. Something I would be really keen to watch out for is Johnson has always championed green politics and climate change. We had COP last year. And yet it's something that Conservative MPs are quite routinely against. Whether that changes in the future, Nigel Farage has talked about making an anti-climate change party. That's something that I would be on guard for. But to sort of your idea of Partygate, we saw a photo yesterday from Pippa Carrera, the Daily Mirror, yes, another one, Johnson with... um, a bottle of what looks very much like alcohol and Dominic Cummings tweeted that that is by no means the best photo. So this thing is going to keep rumbling on and on and on. Akresadik is speaking just today and is being asked about the stuff on BBC Radio London. We'll see if she has anything to add. So in short, Ewan, no, it hasn't gone away. Yes, it will keep going. The kind of sort of drama around it has kind of died down. We're not breathlessly reporting the latest stories. But, but there could be another moment when Conservative MPs do pull the trigger. I mean, already Boris Johnson has effectively promised MPs that they will have a greater say in, in government. I mean, that is a huge um, change from kind of 10 Downing Street dominating policy appointments and everything else. Mm. And if 54 letters were to go in, mm. that would be a disaster for Johnson. And that is looking incredibly likely at some point in the next few months. And it only takes Theresa May's experience, you know, not to years ago to know that even surviving that kind of vote could be a very pyrrhic victory it could still spell the end for Johnson's premiership and you look what's on the calendar with sort of energy prices going up potential risk with Ukraine the cost of living crisis and May elections and 
what was already a very difficult, far more difficult than anticipated start mm. of the year for Johnson does not look like it could get better. Well, although I did also see Boris Johnson, for example, in the Wall Street Journal, an, uh, an op-ed piece just out today talking about Russia. So also the Prime Minister, you know, trying to refocus and, and look at the big picture and the big kind of policy uh, issues And suddenly that could be his light at the end of the tunnel. That could yeah, be, he sees, he's a big historian, he sees Margaret yes. Thatcher in the Falklands, maybe that is how he intends to reshape And things. there were plenty of historic references in that, in that piece that uh, he wrote. James, thanks so much for being with us, taking us through some of the uh, politics today. Well, that takes us quite neatly on to our next guest. Now, a poll from Ipsos Mori has found that the Prime Minister's favourability ratings have dropped to record lows, putting him on track to be one of the most disliked leaders since the 1980s. Let's speak to the Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, Kelly Beaver. Kelly, thanks uh, so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, just how bad are Boris Johnson's ratings at the moment? So this wasn't an overnight thing. That's firstly pretty important to understand. It's not as bad yet uh, as the depths of sort of Thatcher and Major just before they departed number 10, but it is very bad. Um, so seven in 10 people dissatisfied with how he's doing his job. Many uh, also majority believing that Keir Starmer would do a better job and that's not a very good place to be. But as I said, it wasn't just Partygate that created this effect for Boris Johnson. We've been seeing both his ratings and also the ratings of his party in a slow decline from around the summer of 2021. And then it really started to speed up as a result of Partygate and some of the, the more recent scandals. But then the flip side is, how positive did Britons feel about the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson? You know, that that gathering together, that uniting in the face of a common enemy, the pandemic. I mean, uh, the ratings were very, very strong. So, you know, perhaps no surprise that they've come off somewhat. They are. They, they were high at the point of the vaccine uh, rollout from the pandemic and also at that early stage when the country did pull together in around March 2020. He wasn't the only leader that had that kind of effect. There were other parts of the Western world where we saw the same kind of rally around the flag effect. But we are looking at how he's tracking now the midterm rate. And there are uh, a small number who have been at this, the same sort of point of the midterm uh, and a vast number who've been ahead of that. So he is tracking comparatively to some of his predecessors, not in a brilliant position. Certainly when you're sitting at minus 39 net satisfaction, it, it isn't a good place to be. How, how is the polling amongst the people that kind of really matter, those the swing voters, perhaps people who voted Tory for the first time in, in, in 2019, not, not the dyed-in-the-wall Conservatives or, or, or solid Labour supporters, but those people in the middle, what's, what's the polling like there? So the red wall seats is an area I often get asked about because obviously they are the seats where uh, they're marginal. But anything that you see happening on a national level is going to be more exaggerated in those areas because by, by nature they are marginal. I think looking at the top line polling is interesting, but getting beneath the surface is really important of what's going on in those areas and why did they vote the way they did back in 2019 as anything shifted. So we've actually been doing a range of focused groups up in Yorkshire, uh, some of the red wall areas there recently. And you can see that actually there isn't this sense that they lent their vote to the Conservatives and they're likely to swing back to uh, the Labour Party really enthusiastically. They felt like they'd been let down. And so they really are still up for grabs. But there's a lot of work to do between now and the point of a general election for the Conservative Party in those areas. So, so, so that sounds like it's it's not it's not really quite clear where they where they're going. Was that was that would you say that's a broadly what you found? 
I, I think there was a there's perception when you look at some of the headline polls that also translate into those marginal seats that people would naturally move to vote Labour now, given Boris Johnson's favourability has dropped. Certainly the Conservative Party vote share in those areas has dropped as well. But it doesn't, when you go beneath the surface and you look at the attitudes of the public and what they're saying, they're saying that actually they wanted somebody with a credible economic vision. Like one of the quotes here from, from the public, we want somebody who can take back the country. It's about feeling pride in our country, again, boosting our economy. They wanted somebody else to give it a try in their area. And those sentiments are still very much there. They still feel like there's something to be proven. And there is this point now between now and the point of a general election mm. where it is all still very much to play for in those areas, despite well, the current situation. I mean, I think perhaps the levelling up white paper reflected that, didn't it? Because it went into a lot of the history of the depths of the inequality regionally in the UK that that they are, you know, um, decades, if not centuries in the making. So perhaps that kind of, um, you know, reflected in public opinion. I'm not sure. What about Keir Starmer, though? Do they, do the public, the people that you've been speaking to, feel that Keir Starmer is a fresh face, is somebody that that could deliver some of this, um, uh, you know, needed economic growth, for example? Has the party gate row helped him? So his ratings are still fairly unspectacular when we look across history, but he is still leading Johnson uh, on who people think would make the most capable prime minister. And he beats him on important things that matter to the public, like are they seen as being honest, being in touch with ordinary people, etc.? But when you get to the fundamentals with the public and you ask them, you know, do you think Labour are ready to form a government? Do you think they're ready to govern? The public are still fairly split. So sort of 38% saying uh, yes and 40% saying they, they disagree with that. So there's still a long way to go for both Keir Stammer and the Labour Party to be seen as ready to govern. But one of the big things that is going to work in their favour is how the public perceives Labour generally on the economy at the minute and also on the cost of living. I heard your previous guest talking about cost of living becoming front and centre, and it certainly is. And that's an area where Labour and uh, Keir Stammer could potentially gain ground between now and a general election. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. On the cost of living, how much is that coming into the into front of mind for, for voters? Because we've been talking about it a lot on Bloomberg, but are, are people really talking about that to pollsters as well? Well, so a majority of people now are telling us that it's talked about too little, actually, in the media. Would you believe they think it, it fundamentally deserves more media time? So um, that's a recent statistic that we've put out. But looking at the, the range of public opinion that we have, it feels to me like the public feel like they're standing on the edge of a, a sort of a cliff about to go into free fall around some of the cost of living issues. It's not hitting them hard yet, but they're anticipating that it will. So something like 85% say that they're worried about energy prices, and 7 in 10 say they're worried about the food prices rising. So there's this expectation and anticipation of something quite significant about to change for people on the ground in their cost of living. And what people are thinking about now is how they reduce discretionary spend on, on certain items, but also if they have the savings built up through the pandemic, which some people did, how they're going to be spending that over the next uh, 18 months or so to help help them deal with some of these costs. So it's very much fun to find for the public. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.